0: Welcome to my podcast series, I'm Gabrielle Ranker, and I'm going to be speaking to Delia McCabe, a nutritional neuroscientist. Delia has a background in psychology and received her PhD from Adelaide Medical School. Delia's current research focuses on the neurobiology of stress and nutrition. This is our first episode and we talk about good fats and not so good fat. Be prepared to throw out your fry pan and rethink that bullet coffee habit. I understand that you were a psychologist and then you went on to become a neuroscientist with the fascination of nutrition being something that really is essential for psychology, for the brain, for the, the function of the brain and the function of being a human being.
1: Absolutely, Gabby. And thank you for the invite. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Um, yes, that's actually what happened. Um, I started out wanting to become an expert at the talking cure. Um, to get people to to change their lives. And hopefully I was going to be the catalyst to do that. And along the way, as people say, you know, your journey gets, maybe your destination gets derailed and you find a new destination because that's actually what happened to me because I was intent on on my purpose and I was also um, doing a career guidance uh, project with with a colleague and we were doing career gardens for school children so you know when children are at school and they don't know what to do with their lives and they're curious about that so we had a system where we did a, a whole lot of very robust and validated and reliable psychometric tests and we put all the tests together so we checked the person's personality we looked at their aptitude we looked at their interests we looked at their intellectual capacity and we put all of those things together as well as what they were interested in and what their hobbies were and the test took about four hours and um, we, we found out what, what these children would be really good at uh, by combining all these, these measurement instruments and getting their results. And then we gave them this 25-plus page um, report, which was really wonderful for them because they didn't have to go and muddle around to figure out what they were going to do. But at the same time, I was also doing my master's and I was looking at the psychological variables that were related to achievement. And so these two projects basically coincided because... While I was looking at all these children and and assessing their aptitude and their interest and their, you know, they're looking at their school marks and so on, it came to my attention that there were a whole group of them that were really smart kids. You know, they were really very capable, but they were doing really poorly at school. And I suspect that's one of the reasons that the parents sent them to us because the, the parents were really concerned about, you know, what the future looked like for these children because the teachers kept on saying to them, "Look, your child is really smart, but they're underachieving," and so that really informed my master's um, research project, and I decided I wanted to see what the psychological variables were for for this underachievement. And, you know, this is where destiny plays a a role, because I had a little bit of extra space in one of my questionnaires. And I thought, you know what, let's just ask them what their favorite food is. I mean, it's just a, a funny question. It's kind of like out of the blue, and let's just see what their answer is. And every one of the children in the underachievement group, that's, you know, the, my, my experimental group, they all love junk food. And the children in my control group, that was the kids that were doing really well and, um, you know, succeeding at school and motivated and so on. They didn't love junk food. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting. It was a very significant difference. It was really like night and day. And I thought, I need to investigate this a little bit more and see see what this actually means. And um that 's basically where my whole my whole journey changed, because I realized that there were people in the world, pioneers, busy looking at what the brain needed to function optimally, and it definitely wasn 't junk food. so I then was pregnant with my first child, and I thought i 'm going to take a little bit of time off to investigate this this concept thoroughly. I need to understand what are the mechanisms underpinning this particular phenomenon what, what are the causes? you know, just purely from the nutritional aspect. And as people say, you know, the rest is history because 25 years later, I never went back to the talking cure. I figured out that it was a waste of time to try and talk a malnourished brain better. I wanted to say to people, you know, what did you have for breakfast? instead of asking them what their relationship was like with their parents or their children or their spouse, I wanted to say, you know, let's look at your blood glucose because that may be impacting your mood. And so it was a complete turnaround for me. And it's not that I don't respect the talking cure because I think that it a, has a very valuable role to play in, in healing people. But I do believe that, you know, nourishing the brain fully allows the brain to look at situations more clearly. It allows people to actually think about themselves in terms of what they can take responsibility for. It allows people simply to look at the options that they have and just make better choices. And that's why, as I said, to you know, earlier, I changed my, my opinion completely and decided that the talking cure wasn't for me. I didn't want to, you know, push a car uphill when the tires were flat. I would prefer to help someone change their life when they were in, in a cognitive state of being receptive and being open and being able to think clearly. And so that probably ultimately led to our conversation today where I I realized that psychology on its own was not going to be the solution for people who really wanted to take responsibility for their mental health. They'd have to understand that what they were eating impacted their thoughts and their capacity to cope and their mood and their memory and their cognitive capacity and their decision-making skills. And once they did that, they could also understand how their neurology fitted into into the picture. And yeah, so that's what I did and
0: that's so interesting to think of it that way because we don't ever hear that about psychology and about mental health being connected to our physical health it's always being seen as separate and there's not enough information out there to really realize that you know even though you hear that we are, you are what you eat but you always think of that in a physical way more than your brain function more than your uh, ability to be you know mentally stable and psychologically well and be able to study and learn and you know, obtain information, and it's all obviously connected. And so, Delia, how is that? So, psychology, neuroscience, and nutrition—how do they intersect in that way? Is that would, thats how you describe how they intersect? Um, where does yeah? Where does uh, where do they all cross? At what point? Is it the brain function? The food for the brain?
1: It's interesting. I've actually been working on um, three circles. Uh, and and looking at how that intersection works and I've been working on it for a couple of (laughs) months to try and get it perfect because just when I think I've got it right I think oh no there's another variable that I need to add so I haven't finished with that picture yet but what I can tell you really clearly is part of the 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 legacy of medicine and part of the legacy of looking at human beings has been to separate issues Um, because experts I think felt that if they really understood all the separate issues they would then uh, Put them together and understand the whole. But it's a little bit more complex than that because just let's take, for example, just the psychology of you as a person. You know, when you look at your food choices, those food choices come down to what you learned in your mother's kitchen and what your culture dictated. And also part of the psychology of food relates to what foods you were taught to eat when you were emotionally distressed. And different people have different food choices in those circumstances. Most of them are sweet, which we will get to discuss a little bit later. Um, Then you also look at the psychology of of how you cope. If If you grow up and you start putting on a little bit of weight, how do you cope with that? Do you become really strict? And this is when your personality comes into it. So different people's personalities will dictate how they deal with food challenges, how they deal with limiting their food, disciplining themselves or not. So that's partly the psychology of the food. When we look at the neurology of food, then we look at you know how neural pathways become established. If you eat a certain food regularly, for example, some people have to have a bit of chocolate after a meal, and that becomes a neural pathway. That becomes an established habit. Okay, That's part of the neurology of that. When you look at the kind of food that people eat when they're distressed, that also becomes part of the neurology because the opioids that are released with certain... Consumption of certain food, so that if you learn when you eat certain food, you end up feeling relaxed and calm. You're going to eat that food again when you feel distressed because you've built a neural pathway for that particular behavioural response, for that particular physiological response. I should actually say that neurobiological response. And then we bring nutrition into it. You know, what foods are good and what foods are bad? Where people learn those distinctions? Who teaches them those distinctions? Do they learn themselves? Do they ignore that? Do they listen to what? popular media says do they read books about that once again we come back to personality what drives their interest so we see that we can't actually separate any of these concepts because they are all so intertwined to start teasing them apart becomes really challenging although we can do that if we look at them separately and then put them together and with a person you know i work out a personalized action plan for a person and we look at those three things in isolation and then we put them together um, and the isolation is purely an imaginary isolation. As I've just explained, you can't really tease them apart. But we have measurement tests and so on that we can use to, to try and separate them to, to a degree. You know, the other thing that comes into it is the microbiome. The microbiome affects how we feel, our emotions. It affects our brain because of the vagus nerve and the communication between the gut and the brain. And then, of course, the psychology of that comes into that. Because once again, you know, what did you learn to eat and how, what do you associate food with and your particular personality type? So it's a complex answer to, to your question. But I think the simplicity of it was a desire to make things simple because we didn't understand the complexity. I mean, we didn't know how much serotonin was produced in the gut. That's peripheral serotonin. Once we realized that was the case, we said, wow, you know, serotonin doesn't just work in the brain. Um, maybe 20% of the serotonin that gets produced is produced in the brain the rest is produced in the gut that means that serotonin does a whole lot of things in the gut that also impact the brain so a whole lot of questions have been you know exposed with people saying how does this actually all work and to separate it is challenging i think the bottom line for people to realize and this is i use this phrase a lot and i like this phrase and if the listeners listen to this carefully they'll really understand it all of our thinking which includes our emotions, the outcome of our thinking, which includes our behaviors and so on. All of that occurs across a huge and very sophisticated neural network. And that neural network is made up of cells and chemicals and membranes and molecules, all of which rely on nutrients to function optimally. So just as an example, let's think about at this present state on this planet. A lot of people are very stressed and that means that their brain is registering a sense of unease, a sense of dissatisfaction, a sense of confusion, a sense of overwhelm, and a sense of not knowing what the future holds. And that all leads to a feeling of stress. The brain only evolved to react to stress within 30 to 60 seconds because you were either eaten by a tiger within that time frame or you got away from the tiger and then the stress response could recede. That's not happening anymore. So what's happening is that our bodies are continuously being directed to make adrenaline. Now, very few people think about the nutrients that are required to make adrenaline. You know, adrenaline doesn't just happen. It doesn't just suddenly get produced, um, you know, for our muscles to run or fight or flee. It gets produced using nutrients. And those nutrients are nutrients that are required for a number of other neurotransmitter synthesis in the brain. So if you're continuously stressed and your body's using up a whole lot of these special specialized nutrients, you don't have enough of those nutrients left over to make things like serotonin, to make things like dopamine, and then of course serotonin, melatonin to help you sleep. So it's as if your 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 brain has to decide, okay, what's more important, survival or feeling calm? And what do you think the brain does? The brain says, no, no, survival is paramount. <laughs> we need to make adrenaline. So you consuming food and so many of those important nutrients are being used to make adrenaline and you don't have enough left over to make serotonin because serotonin isn't a, isn't a um, survival neurotransmitter. You know, if your brain's going to decide which of the two is most important, adrenaline will win. So when we think about that thinking process and we think about how we respond to our environment and we think about how we actually live in this world, the thoughts that we think, the decisions that we make, The plans and the goals and all of those dreams, they are all underpinned by this very sophisticated neural network that relies on nutrients to create the neurotransmitters that speak to our neurons and create these neural pathways. So if someone is eating a diet where they are really malnourished and they're not getting enough of these specific nutrients, they actually are unable to form those connections between the neurons that need to be formed to form the neural pathways that need to be created to allow us to feel calm and relaxed, to allow us to actually induce those feelings. It's actually a a biochemical response in the brain that cannot occur if you're missing some of these nutrients. So if you find someone that's always in a bad mood, someone that can't sleep, someone that's, you know, just cranky and unable to concentrate, unable to focus because that's where my interest started. Then you realize that if the brain doesn't have those nutrients, you actually cannot expect it to have an outcome of optimal functioning. It doesn't have the the foundation, the actual building blocks to create the communication between the neurons to enable that particular mindset to occur. Sorry, that was a bit long. No, 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 that's
0: fascinating. And I'm um, I'm just listening to everything you say and I'm just thinking about how, yeah, anxiety and how anxiety produces adrenaline in the body, right? And if you're eating in an anxious state, if you're rushing... You know, I think about, you know, people rushing, rushing to work and stressed and then, you know, throwing down some food at lunchtime. And even if you're eating maybe a good quality meal, it wouldn't necessarily provide the nutrients. You actually absorb those nutrients because you're running on adrenaline. Would that be right? Adrenaline is like a blocker to actually receiving those nutrients.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. I think part of the challenge with eating when we're really stressed is that the part of our central nervous system that needs to be, working when we digest our food is the parasympathetic nervous system and if we can think about it very simply the opposite of the parasympathetic nervous system is the sympathetic nervous system which is the stress nervous system now for most people they're living in the sns at the moment with stress and anxiety and overwhelm to be able to digest your food pns needs to be in existence you need to actually be calm and relaxed we call it the rest and digest part of your nervous system So when you're throwing even good quality food down your throat and you're not chewing it properly, and then you're feeling anxious and you've got all this adrenaline in your body, it is not a priority to digest your food and absorb your food when you're in a state of stress. Because our ancient physiology says, now hold on a second, the tiger could be there and let's get away from that tiger. The fact that we can't get away from the tiger doesn't stop the physiological response from occurring it doesn't occur. So yes, we can be even be eating really good food, but our digestion is then impacted. And once again, you know, when people speak about being stressed, they'll say, my stomach doesn't feel right. It feels like my digestion isn't working properly. You know, a lot of people get irritable bowel syndrome because of ongoing stress. That's one of the underlying factors that, that is unfortunately responsible for this, this issue. So it is all interlinked and to separate and tease them apart we have to address a number of things at the same time. But I didn't want to start trying to get someone to manage their stress if they weren't eating well because then the thing with being stressed is that mostly people gravitate to the kind of foods that give them a quick energy lift and a quick energy boost which are things like coffee, things like, you know, very processed foods with high sugar content, which then sends their blood glucose up and then sends it plummeting again, which sends them wanting that same food again. So if someone is really stressed, of course you want them to calm down, but you want them to make sure that they are also eating the kinds of food so that when they do start digesting their food optimally, they've then got the, got the required nutrients, but it is, it's a complex discussion because it's a complex interaction and for me, I started with the food aspect of it because the nutrients are required to be able to synthesize the neurotransmitters required to allow you to be calm, but you do have to do it hand in hand with taking stress under control or getting it more under control as well
0: Yeah, because it can be uh, it is complex in the uh, what you were saying earlier about habits and forming habits, so then if you have a stressed person and they are used to eating junk food or processed food and then you um, approach them and say to eat a more nutritional balanced you know organic diet that may even stress them out because that's not what they're used to they're used to these sugary drinks their coffee um that can be these things that they they uh, are they like they rely on they rely on to get through their day in a, in a sense so it's almost like um it's kind of it sounds like two things to me you know like you because I know when I put myself on, you know, strict diets or very clean diets, you don't notice the results straight away. It's more the sensation of putting those things back into your system that then you you can feel it. You can feel that sugar, the, the salt, the, the processed foods. You can taste the numbers that are in foods, you know. And and so, and that's after the fact. So it's not like, um, you know, when you take on a really good, clean diet that you oh, you feel so much better within a couple of days or in a couple of weeks. It's very a long-term commitment to eating well and having a more balanced diet. And it's just that awareness becomes very apparent when you do eat the processed foods.
1: You're 100% right. And that's what does make it challenging for people to change. I think when I look at this challenge, I think that when people become educated about how, important food is for their brain i think when they really take that on board um, i've I've had people in you know when i when we could still do in-person presentations I, i could see them actually taking this on board i've got a special slide that i show them what nutrients are required to make adrenaline as we discussed and what nutrients are required to make serotonin and you can just see them go, oh my goodness, now I know why being stressed makes me so exhausted. I've got, no ener- I've got none of those nutrients required to actually make energy. And Once you see that light bulb go off, you, you realize that these people are much more committed now to making a change. They can actually see what's happening or they see the abstract form you know, in, in, in an image of what's actually happening in their brain. So for me, education is first. The second thing, unfortunately, is that most people only really change when they're in a lot of pain. There's, there, there are very few people that shift their behavior unless they're in pain, because most people battle with consequential thinking. They battle thinking about prevention. We've been trained as a society to think about cure. So when people are thinking about anxiety and they're thinking about you know, being depressed or being very stressed, they'll go to the doctor and the doctor will say, oh, well, we're going to give you an anxiolytic or we'll give you an antidepressant, which does have anxiolytic effects. And then you'll fitter. And because we used to a society that, you know, likes this kind of approach, most people want a quick fix. The thing about changing the way you eat, as you said, it definitely does have a longer term effect. But for most people that make the shift, they can notice a difference in a couple of days. And the reason they do that is simply because blood glucose responds very quickly to a good meal. And when your blood glucose is stable, your concentration is improved, your focus is improved, your mood is naturally improved, your cravings go down. And those are all very easy to feel in your body. So I often explain to people that the first thing we're trying to do is to get their blood glucose stable. Because when their blood glucose is stable, they don't have those big mood dips. And those big mood dips are what lead to the food cravings. If they don't have those big mood dips, they end up feeling a little bit more in control of their day and their life. They don't feel as if they continuously being pulled from an external source to behave in a way they don't want to. So immediately they have a little bit more locus of control, which is great for people to feel. And then they go, okay, well, what's the next thing that I can do? Because this, this actually worked. So, for me, it's first the education and then just doing something very simple like keeping blood glucose stable. Even if you do that for 24, 48 hours, people go, wow, actually, I slept better last night. I felt better and that, that those cravings are reduced. And immediately when someone feels that positive response, they go, wow, you know, I'm prepared to give this a bit more. Of a the other thing, of course, is to not make healthy food boring. And I think when you speak to most people, you know, about eating more healthily, they go, Oh my goodness, broccoli, you know, and boring carrot sticks. And they really don't think about delicious decadent food. And one of the reasons this is kind of like a fallout from the unfortunate low-fat diet craze, where they really didn't get it, the researchers and and the clinicians, they didn't get the fact that fat was actually not making us fat. Um, and I, I always say that it was actually the wrong word. They used the word fat to describe fats and oils when they actually should have used used the word lipids because lipids is the biochemical word that you use to describe fats and oils. And if they'd said, oh, lipids are good for you, people would have go, oh, that's great. But now instead they said, you know, now we know today that fats are good for you. And they go, what? Because the low fat craze made people believe that fat made us fat. And so they stopped eating fat with food. And when you remove fat from food, unfortunately, the food does taste bland and boring because flavor molecules disperse much more readily in fat molecules than they do in water molecules. So when they decided that the, the low fat base was the way to go, food manufacturers copied what the researchers were saying and they said, okay, what are we are going to do? We're going to have to add a whole lot of stuff to this low fat food because it tastes like cardboard. So they started adding, you know, flavor enhancers, things like MSG, much more salt, much more sugar, but there was no fat in it. It was toxic, but there was no fat in it. And then of course, when people ate it, it didn't taste good. It really didn't taste good because, as I said, the flavor molecules, they had nothing to disperse optimally in. So that's a major thing to get people to understand that eating healthy food does not have to involve any deprivation at all. And the way to do that is to know what are the right kinds of fats to use. Because if you know what the right kinds of fats are and you use them properly, um, then all your food can taste delicious all the time. There's no deprivation involved at all. No, that's fascinating.
0: Fascinating. I never heard it described that way and um, I do remember at my time as a therapist having a client that was very aware of fat and even she didn't want to eat almonds because they were known as fat. So like you said, like it's so the power of words and what they connect people to is, is um, you can recognise it right in that, in that what you just described. So Delia, what are the good fats and what are the fats to um, not engage with? <laughs>
1: Not in jest. <laughs> yeah, as little as okay. possible. <laughs> I love this question. And I also dread it because my normal lecture on fats and oils takes over three hours. Okay. So I'm going to have to condense this really, really nicely and nice and simply. And it's, it's, it's quite easy to condense it. When I first started, I'll, I'll tell you, that it was actually quite funny. So there I am deciding, okay, I don't want to be a talking therapist anymore. You know, I've got my master's degree. Um, I've turned my, my back kind of like on talking therapy. And I thought, okay, I'm going to speak to the experts, you know, the people that know the pioneers about nutrition and, 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 and um, the brain. And I discover, oh my goodness, 60% of the brain is made up of fat, 60% of the dry weight of the brain. And I go, wow, that's amazing. I better discover a bit about fats and oils. And I think to myself naively, oh, that will take me a couple of weeks and I'll know what that's about. And then I can move on to the nutrients, you know, like like vitamins and minerals. And I can promise you after 25 years, I'm still learning about fats and oils or about lipids because they're the most complex and the most misunderstood aspect of nutrition. And the reason that they're so complex leads us to another problem. Any complex subject, it's very easy to fool people on a complex subject because if you don't know anything about a topic and someone says one thing to you, you think, oh, wow, and you believe them. So I'm going to just dive into this now and and explain it. To you and the listeners so that they can easily grasp this and it is not that complicated if you just keep a few principles in mind what i had to do for myself is actually make a chart to actually separate the saturated fats from the minnow unsaturated fats from the polyunsaturated fats which are omega-3 and omega-6. So I actually designed a chart for myself. So when I was doing all my research, I could quickly look and see, okay, now that's a saturated fat because they've got different molecular names and numbers because they're really quite complex. And I took that chart and I obviously added to it over the years and I put it into my first book so that people could actually look at the chart and immediately know. So let's start with the first column and the first column is saturated fats. And we've basically got two kinds of broad categories of saturated fats. The first group of saturated fats come from animals, so we think about butter, we think about lard, anything that comes from an animal has got saturated fat in it, and then we think about some plants that have got saturated fat in them, and the most famous of those is cacao butter, which chocolate contains, and we have shea nut butter and palm kernel and so on. So those are both saturated fats, one from the plant kingdom and one from the animal kingdom. When researchers realised that people that live on islands and eat a lot of saturated plant fats were not dying from cardiovascular disease. They had to very quickly change their minds about the fact that the lesson or, the, or the, the message that they were putting out to the public was that saturated fat causes heart disease. And they had to go, oh, wow, these people aren't dying from heart disease. They're actually quite fit and healthy and they have very little heart disease and you know they're living on saturated fats. So they then had to go back to the drawing board. But as we know, it takes about 17 years for research to meet the man in the So it's taken a long time for people to understand that saturated fat is not the villain that they once thought it was. But but let's leave that discussion for a little. Um, So so we have saturated fat. The next category is monounsaturated fat, which means they've got one double carbon bond, all of these fats. And monounsaturated, the memory cue here is simply mostly the Mediterranean. And the most popular one um, that we know most about is olive oil. And olive oil can also be known as oleic acid. And it's also known as omega-9. And olive oil has often been spoken about if it's the be-all and end-all, but it's actually not the omega-9 that is so important in olive oil. It's actually some minor ingredients like plant sterols and and chlorophyll that are important in olive oil Um, because the body can easily make saturated fat and monounsaturated fat from carbohydrates. And this is what the low fat movement didn't know. That when we eat too many carbohydrates, they get turned into fat that sits on our body. That's, right. big, that's an important part of the puzzle that they missed. Hmm. So if you ate no more saturated fats ever, and you ate no more monounsaturated fats, you could still be perfectly healthy because your body can make the monounsaturated fats as saturated fat need, you would of course miss out on the other nutrients that these foods contain, but the saturated fat and the monounsaturated fat as nutrients would not be missed because your body can make them. In other words, they are not essential. Whereas the next category that we're going to discuss, which are the polyunsaturated fats and oils, the omega-6s and the omega-3s, they are essential. An essential here is used in relationship, in, in relation to the fact that you actually cannot make them. Your body cannot make essential fats. If you don't have them in your diet, you'll become deficient in them and you will have symptoms and signs of deficiency. And the omega-3 and the omega-6 story is also a pretty complex story, once again, because it's a complex subject. And without omega-6 and without omega-3, our brains don't function optimally at all because of that 60% of the dry weight of the brain that's made up of fat, between 20, maybe 22, maybe 25% of that 60% needs to be made up of essential fats. And the reason it needs to be made up of essential fats is actually down to the structure of that fat molecule because omega-6 and omega-3 have lots of double carbon bonds. And those carbon bonds attract oxygen. And oxygen is needed in the brain to allow electrochemical impulse to work between neurons. Because that's how neurons communicate with each other, with an electrochemical response. And those essential fats allow that process to occur optimally. Without them, the brain battles to work at the speed that it needs to work at. And the the way the neurons connect to each other don't don't work efficiently. They're also responsible for the synthesis of neurotransmitter at the the actual synapse. So if you've ever seen an image of a neuron, you know that synapses are what the the neurotransmitters jump across. Neurons never touch each other, they jump across the synapse. And that synapse is a very, very fat, rich area because it's related to the release and the synthesis of neurotransmitters. And if it's not made up of the right kinds of fats, where the cell membrane of the fat, sorry, of, of, the, of the, the, the synapse needs to be very malleable and very flexible to be able to respond instantly, then that neurotransmitter isn't synthesized or released optimally either. So so Can confirm, I just want to
0: clarify, so omega-3s and six are what makes, is that the 6% of the brain mass that's fat? Are
1: they omega-3s and 6s no no it's 60 percent of the dry weight of the brain is made up of fat but of right. that 60 percent between 20 and 25 percent optimally needs to be made up of the essential fatty acids right because because of their unique um, makeup and the rest will be saturated fat and some unsaturated fat Right. it's interesting this question because there's nobody standing up and say hey i want to have a brain biopsy and I want you to check exactly how much essential fatty acids I have in my brain. Um, and there are just as many people standing up and say, hey, I want a liver biopsy, because that's where you'd get a very good idea of the ratio as well. Um, of course, rats can't vote. So we put them into labs and we assess what, they, what their responses are. And unfortunately, you know, they've given us a lot, of, a lot of good insight. And there's a lot of very robust evidence to show in human studies as well essential fatty acids are extremely important for brain function, extremely important. And we measure that in a variety of different ways. You can do essential fatty acid blood assays as well to see how much people have in their blood, which gives you some kind of indication. The best way, Gabby, actually to know if you have enough of the right essential fats is to look at your skin. Because when skin is very dry, when you have cracked heels, when, when people have things like eczema and psoriasis and, and so on, when their hair is dry and their nails are cracking, those are external signs of not having enough essential fats, simply because essential fats are required in the most metabolically active organs first. So that's the head, that's the brain, the heart, the adrenal glands and the reproductive organs. Those are the most metabolically active organs we, we own. And so they need a very high percentage of the essential fats, primarily omega-3, because of the the connectivity and the way those fats work with oxygen and electricity. So if we just step back for a moment and look at what most people believe, most people believe that omega-6 is bad for you, and I'm sure that you've read that as well, and the media has has unfortunately perpetuated that myth. In fact, without omega-6, people become infertile, and also long-term potentiation, which is memory consolidation, doesn't occur optimally either so omega-6 is extremely important as well
0: why do you think those kind of that kind of information gets out to the media then people hear things that are are not correct they're not good like saying things aren't good for us when they actually are but how does that um is that come from someone else's study and you know, how does that come about that kind of information? Did... I, I
1: think there are a number of reasons that this has come about. And I think it's because once again, it's a very complex conversation. The first thing to know about omega-6 is that it is an essential fat, but it, also, it gets damaged when it's exposed to light heat and oxygen. So most of, I would actually say, all of the processed fats in plastic bottles that line the shelves at Coles and Woolies, you know, down those golden aisles, Those fats are mostly omega-6 fats and oils that have been damaged via processing because to keep them shelf stable, the manufacturer has to remove all of the nutrients from them like vitamin E and chlorophyll and so on. Otherwise they will go rancid. So that's the first reason. So damaged omega-6 fats are very bad for us. So we shouldn't be consuming them. We need to find omega-6 fats that are not damaged. That's the first point. The second point is that, you know, the complexity of this conversation, the omega-6, they won't always show how how essential omega-6 was. Firstly, when they did this research, I think it was in the late 60s, early 70s, they said, oh, okay, dogs, for dogs, omega-6 is essential. And then later they discovered that omega-6 was essential for everybody. So some researchers, you know, they all will agree that omega-6 is essential. They just disagree how it's used in the body. When you look at the researchers that have, that have looked at the ratios of omega-6 to omega-3, you see that they actually understand the different molecular structure and how it works in the brain. So the media also unfortunately grabs hold of a tiny little soundbite and doesn't have the time, the inclination or the knowledge to be able to send that information out into the public in the complexity you know, that it really deserves. So this is why part of the story is true. Yeah, damaged omega-6 is, is toxic and you shouldn't be consuming it and you shouldn't be frying your food in it and you shouldn't be eating food that's fried in it. But you do need good undamaged omega-6 fats. And we get that in seeds, you know, that's not a problem. We can find these fats. We just shouldn't be taking them in, in a damaged form. So it, it's hard to answer that question because there are a number of different variables. The right. biggest problem came in, when um, farmers discovered that it was much easier to grow omega-6 plants, because they're not as susceptible to going rancid as the omega-3 seeds seeds are, and they can sometimes get two crops of omega-6 plants in versus not really being able to do that with omega-3 plants, like flaxseed and chia seeds and so on. So they decided to focus on the omega-3, um, sorry, the omega-6 um, seeds and grow a lot of them. And then they took over in, in, you know, in manufacturing. And so we just got too much of them, a glut of them. So if you do, did an, a, a ratio at the moment for most people in the population, you'd find that they had a ratio of between 20 and even up to 40 to one. In favor of omega six, which isn't the way it should be. It should be in favor of omega three because omega three is used a lot more in our metabolically active organs. So it's a little bit of a complex answer, but yeah, that that's part of it.
0: And Delia, I'm interested um, in coconut oil. Coconut oils become huge. Like coconut products have become huge in it. Um, health, health shops and you know natural, um, you know dairy free kind of products are usually coconut based yeah what what can you share about that because it just seems to have exploded over the last five years five to ten years but yeah definitely the last five years coconut water coconut oil many different dairy-free products are now made with coconut so yeah is that is that good for us
1: well, once again, it's a little bit of a complex, complex answer. Yes, coconut, coconut fat and coconut oil and coconut water and coconut products are good for us. And that's, you know, when the researchers went to the islands to see people that were living on these products, they saw they were really, really healthy people and they didn't have a problem. However, if you consume a lot of coconut products and you're not exercising a lot, you're not actually using up energy what will happen is that you'll end up putting on weight. You will because saturated right. fats can make you put on weight. It's not just that you can use them, you know, as a source of energy all the time. And also, once again, let you me know, just get to go to get back to the cell. If your cell, mem- if you only consuming coconut oil, for example, or only saturated fats like people do with a ketogenic diet. Um, and if they're not aware of the, the role of essential fatty acids, then what happens is that your cell membrane isn't as flexible and malleable as it needs to be because that lipid and protein layer in that cell membrane will be made up of the, of the fats that you consume or that your body makes. So if you're only consuming coconut oil, for example, and not enough of the essential fats, your cell membranes will be made up mostly of saturated fat. And then what happens, the body's going to make more cholesterol because cholesterol is used in a cell membrane to keep the cell membrane flexible and malleable if you don't have enough essential fats. So then what happens, your cholesterol production goes up, which isn't great. Um, And your cell membrane doesn't have enough of the essential fats in them, which don't just keep your cell membrane um, flexible and malleable. They also have other functions to do as in the form of arcasenoids or prostaglandins, where they become tiny little like hormone um, hormones, and they talk to, to, to the cells next to them. So it's a bit of a complex answer. Coconut, coconut fat is great and it's wonderful. And the reason it became so popular is because the researchers realised it's actually a really good product, but you can't eat it in isolation. You need the essential fats as well to balance it out. And once again, you need to make sure that it's organic product, that it's also a cold pressed product. Um, and then there's an environmental impact, you know, um, of, of huge coconut oil plantations that have decimated the environment and you know destroyed the, the habitat of a lot of, of a lot of creatures. When we don't actually need coconut oil, it's not that we need it. It does contain some really good compounds. So it's got medium-chain triglycerides in it, and it's also antiviral and antibacterial, which is really good. But in terms of the fat content, it's not that we need coconut fat as a saturated fat. Our body could make that.
0: Right. And so what I'm hearing is really the unlike anything it really is the quality as well like it's organic or it's um, processed correctly it's not overprocessed. it hasn't become carcinogenic through the processing um you know changing the molecular structure of oil which is done when you uh, understand when you you know if you use it in a fry pan or if you boil it to a certain degree so what would you say to people that were, were conscious of this and what would be your answer to Choosing the right fats and going to the supermarket—would that be your advice to always buy organic, cold-press quality products to ensure that you get the right, the right nutrients from that product, and that you're not—you you could you could buy something that's not as well produced, but then you, you could not be gaining the nutrients from it. So it can be, you know, almost just a uh, circular <laughs> in a sense that you, you know, it's not fulfilling the need is what I'm trying to say. So yeah, what do you think of that? Is it? It's just better to buy, you know, top, if you can, quality ingredients, quality oils and, and fats and, and organic when you can, cold press when you can. Is that what your advice would
1: be? Absolutely, Gabby. I think one really good rule to keep in mind is that manufacturers, farmers and manufacturers of quality oils will make sure that they put into glass bottles, dark glass bottles, And they will sell them at a premium because they've taken extra care to keep those fat molecules healthy and safe. So a good rule of thumb is to use less oil, but to use the best quality that you can find and to use it organic, if you possibly can find it, (coughs) sorry, simply because pesticides accumulate in fat. Right. And with a brain that is so heavy in fat, The last place we want pesticides is in our neural tissue because pesticides interfere with nerve functioning to a significant degree. And that's something that we need to stop at all costs. So pesticides in any products are a problem, but pesticides in fat is a bigger problem because they're actually congregating fat in fat products and in our fat tissue. So that's an important thing to keep in mind. And if you keep that in mind, you automatically won't buy anything in plastic because the oils that are in plastic are firstly not valued by the, by the manufacturer. The manufacturer only values the sell by date. The harsh processing that those oils have undergone mean that most of them contain trans fats. And then there are other worse fats than trans fats called polymerized fats, sized fats and cross-linked fats, which are also in those products. And which you can't use as a source of energy, which you can use, which, which trans fats can be used as a source of energy. So anything in a plastic um, bottle, that's a transparent plastic bottle, never ever purchase because it is toxic. And then of course, we come down to the, the most basic of all, don't fry any food mm. and don't eat food that's been fried and don't eat food that's got toxic fat molecules in them. Because once again, it gets taken up into your body. It's used in your cell membranes. Just as an aside, Gabby, if we had to take all of the cell membranes in our whole entire body and brain and lay them out flat, they would cover 10 football fields. Wow. So the fat in our cell membranes have a very, very important role to play. They are the interface between cells, the way cells communicate. So making sure that that's that, that um, fat cell membrane is made up of the right kinds of fats is a very important element of, of health. It's, it's a foundation for health physically and mentally. And Delia, you know, just on I um, was thinking about like, the organic aspect and
0: like pesticides and for myself, um, a year ago, I found a very good organic market nearby and I buy all my fruit and vegetables from the organic market. And the value of that is... You definitely see it. It might be a little bit more expensive, actually very reasonable the market I go to. Uh, but the, the food, the quality of the food and the longevity of the food, it lasts longer. I have it in my refrigerator for you know two, three weeks easily, where something from Woolworths or Coles, you're lucky if you get a few days before it starts to go rubbery and, and soft and start to decay, <laughs> right in your crisper, right? So I think that value I think that's what puts people off and they think organic or they think there's an expense, but you you're guaranteed that the you get it back you get your value from spending on good food obviously you the value is the health for yourself um looking after yourself, so you can't put a price on that as well so if you you can' afford it then it's it's one hundred percent way to go find a a great organic market where you can purchase or everything possible that has been made without chemicals as much as possible and i feel like we've just been conditioned to think it's okay to have these chemicals in our food and it absolutely is not
1: i agree with you 100 percent. i think that people are really not aware how toxic these chemicals are within our bodies and i think you know you always hear someone say oh well i know such and such they never ate organic and they lived to be 90 um, yeah, there's always the outlier.
0: But the yeah. majority
1: of people, after smoking, a drink, of time, scotch and yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I know for sure that those kind of people definitely didn't have stress destroying them because if you are stressed and do that, then it's a perfect storm. But the majority of people, when they abuse their body, their body is very, very forgiving. And the body will, for even decade after decade, you know, carry on performing, people may get tired, they may not, you know, immune function may may not be as good as it should be, but eventually that body will break down. And unfortunately, in our environment, with all the chemicals that are available, and that just, you know, it's an onslaught, you know, from the minute you open your eyes till the minute you go to sleep, and even in your bed, there are chemicals in terms of your bedding mm-hmm. and your mattress and so on the body really battles with that because it's continuously trying to rejuvenate It's continuously trying to detox and get rid of those, those chemicals, but it's continuously having those chemicals, you know, come up again. So it's a huge problem for the body. And I'm really amazed at the resiliency of human beings. I think though, that more people are suffering from mental ill health, even if they don't stand up and, and say that, And that's because the brain is so sensitive to chemicals and toxins, because we get chemicals and toxins into our brain through our nose, which is a direct route straight to the brain. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, obviously through our gut, we get we get that and then we get it through our skin, which travels throughout our whole bloodstream and into into the brain. So. The more toxins we exposed to as well, that beautiful blood brain barrier that was designed to keep toxins out, it starts breaking down and it becomes less and less effective at stopping those chemicals cross that barrier. So the onslaught that we have is really quite disturbing. And so if people can, you know, spend less on clothes and spend more on, on organic food, they'll reap the benefits in the years to come without a doubt. You absolutely and so will. I... The environment. What's that? Sorry. Sorry, Gabby, and so will the environment because all the yes. chemicals that we pour into the soil yes. is ending up in our rivers and in our oceans, and that's no good for us either as a species.
0: Yeah, and, um, you know, the more that people buy organic, the cheaper it becomes as well. It becomes less expensive because then the farms would be, um, you know, there'd be a lot more organic farms and, the um, you know, the production would just benefit us all without having to – although, you know, and – Maybe that's a political conversation to say you know is there the power to be you know create these kind of you know dominant crops that do use chemicals and obviously that's in the whole industry as well the pesticides and and chemicals and um, genetically modified seeds and that kind of thing but Delia also on a on a, um, on another note, I am actually interested in the bullet coffee that's I love coffee I have no a bullet coffee, but I'm always interested in fads that come out and then that's the latest thing. And that's how you can, you know, combine your fat intake, your good fat intake with your favorite be- beverage of the morning. So what do you have to say <laughs> about bullet coffee? Because I'm, it's been around for a couple of years now is something that, um, you know, healthy people sort of abide by.
1: Yeah, I, I love this question. And I also dread this question. I think if we just stick to the facts of the story, you know, caffeine does, um, cause a surge of adrenaline in in the body. Firstly, it causes a surge of dopamine, which is a really feel-good neurotransmitter. And, you know, you feel everything is good and I've got energy and I can cope with everything and focus and concentration is high. It's the same um, neurotransmitter that's released when people sniff cocaine, you know, and use methamphetamine. So it's a pretty powerful neuro- neurotransmitter dopamine. So caffeine does cause the release of dopamine, but there's never a free lunch because with dopamine comes adrenaline. So if people are really stressed and if people aren't coping and they're overwhelmed, then using caffeine as a pick-me-up can actually cause a lot of problems down the road because they feel like they can cope, they get that adrenaline surge. And then when the blood glucose drops off again, because with an adrenaline spike comes a blood glucose spike, when, when those two drop again, the person feels needed in a cup of coffee. So that's the first part of the discussion. I'm not a person to tell someone not to drink coffee because, you know, if it's organic, firstly, once again, for the reasons we've just discussed, and it's something that they enjoy and it's part of their daily ritual, I'd say that's great. But if you are relying on coffee to get you through the day, that's a completely different discussion because that means that your mitochondria are too exhausted to get you through the day without that caffeine boost. So that's the first part of the, the discussion. The second part, you know, the bulletproof coffee part where you put butter into your coffee, that was the traditional method of delivering this this benefit and people now put coconut butter in and you know coconut oil and so on i don't have any problem with that per se but once again it's relying on saturated fat and saturated fat is fine if you have enough of essential of the essential fatty acids and saturated fat is also fine if you're very active and from what i can gather the person that introduced you know, bulletproof coffee was a very active person. I believe he actually did mountain climbing. So he wasn't a couch potato enjoying his bulletproof coffee. So I would suggest that couch potatoes don't follow that, that protocol. But if you are an active person and, you know, you're busy and you're getting around and you're not lying around on the couch, I don't find any problem with that. But once again, just the balance, making sure you have enough of the essential fatty acids as well, because just having saturated fats, they are not essential. And they're just not essential. Yeah. That's basically the bottom line. And it comes down to what's happening within the cell membrane. Because so um, what I'm
0: hearing is like coffee, doesn't matter which way you try and, you know, whatever you put with it, it's really not a good thing for you. It's really, it's not, it's not beneficial for the body. Is that what
1: you're saying? Like, really? Like bottom Bottom line is... <laughs> I can't even be bottom line with that. I'm sorry, because there's, there's quite a lot of research that shows yeah. that coffee is good for us and coffee right. is good for brain function and so on. So I can't say it's bad. I think people have to make their own decision. Okay. If people are stressed and they are anxious and they are overwhelmed. I actually wrote about this in a recent LinkedIn post about foods that drive anxiety. And I mentioned coffee and I know that I always get a backlash. The thing about coffee is everyone has to make their own personal decision. I can't do that you know, for them. If they're relying yeah. on coffee, it's a poor sign their body's battling. If it's just something that they enjoy and they love. My husband has a lovely cup of organic coffee every single morning. He doesn't, he doesn't have any more. He has one. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm definitely not the person to say no to him. But when I see people relying on coffee to get through the day, then I'm going, no, no, hold on, there's a problem. And look, they know there's a problem too. <laughs> it's just that I don't like to be the person to point it out to them. <laughs> no, <Whatever>. I, <laughs> I respect that because, yeah, people do get questions
0: about things like, like coffee or their glass of wine and um i know there was research about you know red wine is good for you and i'm like oh i don't know but that makes people feel better when they hear those kind of
1: studies that say these things are good oh look gabby that is so funny that that brings me back to one of my favorite saying is that everybody loves good news about their bad habits yeah
0: (laughs) that's so true and that's that's just the truth yes that's it is true and then you can um you can you can feel safe with it. You can feel that like you can keep it and and it's okay. And and yeah. and you know I always um, feel that you just use yourself as a you know a scientific study when you put something into your body. How does that make you feel? And I'm definitely a coffee in the morning person, but I know it's not good for me. I can feel it. I can feel that adrenaline rush. I can feel that you know heart racing. I, how is that good for you? It's it just isn't. It makes you feel alert. And it makes you feel like you can get a lot of things done, but then you can feel the slump when the caffeine starts to wear off. So I totally know it's not good for me. I know when I've gone without it, I feel better, I feel more balanced, I feel more calm. I, you know, I feel clearer in the mind, just like when I haven't don't eat chocolate or sugar. You, you can just, you you really can just tap in and feel how that feels for you, and you just, you know, if you want to. Um, appreciate the physical form and have it work at its optimal level you will take those steps to you know create that environment for it and it's a choice it's just a choice that we all live by uh, our diet and our lifestyle and what's more important so Julia I just want to hear um from you what would be some from your experience and obviously your wealth of knowledge and research what are the sort of top things that you would suggest to people that wanted to get their fats, you know, aligned with, you know, good brain function, good physical function, what would be the sort of recommendations that you would make?
1: Well, I think the first thing is to just make sure that they always avoid damaged fats, whether they avoid using them to fry with. I mean, they should basically just throw their their frying pan away. Um, If you want to use a frying pan. frying anything is just not good.
0: Nothing good is going to come out of that frying pan. Okay.
1: No, no, even that. that unf- <laughs> yeah. Well, if it's organic, you know, and the animal has been has been grown biodynamically and or whatever, we can start <laughs> that discussion too, because you know this isn't about deprivation; it's about knowledge. And mm-hmm. I try and get people to understand that this is not my opinion, and it's not biased by what I'm doing. It's just fact. You know, when I show people the, the slide of how coffee works. This isn't my opinion. It's actually what goes on in the body and the brain when when people consume coffee. So it's not me, you know, saying this is the rule for everybody and they must follow that because that's the way I live. I don't drink coffee because I really don't like what it does to me. But if I travel overseas, you know, which I hope to do again one day if COVID allows us to ever do that, then I will drink coffee to help me cope with the jet lag, just a little bit, and I'll use it in form of medicine. So. I'm glad, you know, that you recognize that this is not about telling people what to do and what not to do. I love what you said, that people start using themselves as, as you know, kind of like an experiment. How do I feel when I do this? How do I not feel? Mm-hmm. And I think that's very important. But, you know, to, to talk about the fats. So that's the first thing, not to fry food and not to buy damaged fats. Um, I remember a conversation I, I had with a woman once, and I, I just have to share this with you because it was really so odd for me. We had this whole discussion about fats and oils. We were actually at the hairdresser, which I'm looking forward to going to again soon. And um, we were talking about fats and oils, which we often get onto you know, when I talk to people. And she was actually a psychiatrist. And so she was particularly curious about the, the research that's been done on essential fats and, and mental health. And then she started telling me about this magnificent walnut oil that she had. And she paid a fortune for it. And it was really good walnut oil. And I said to her, you know, is it in a see-through bottle? And she said, yeah, it's in a see-through bottle. I can see the beautiful golden color. And I said to her, well, I would I would get, guess, and, and I know that I would be right, is that that oil is damaged. Because if it's in a dark bottle already, you know, walnuts have got a lot of omega-6 and some omega-3 in them they would definitely have been damaged by the light and the heat and the oxygen and so on. And she said, but it was so expensive. I can't bear to throw it away. And I often think about that example, you know, where people will spend money on a product and when they learn that the product is not a good product, they want to hold on to it. Mm -hmm. So sometimes knowledge doesn't give people enough, enough, you know, impetus or motivation, but if you're going to go out and purchase an oil, make sure it's in a dark glass bottle, make sure it's cold pressed. And if you possibly can make sure it's organic and then you'll know that the manufacturer and the farmer both cared enough about the integrity of that product to give you a product made with health in mind. So if you've got anything that's, you know, an oil that's in a plastic container, just try and get over the fact that you actually paid for it because you're paying for it in terms of health if you end up using it. That's the first thing. And the second thing is don't buy food that's made with with damaged fats. If people want to make their own um, seed mix, they can do that very simply. If you take a, a cup of flax seeds and you take a third of a cup each of pumpkin seeds, sesame seeds and sunflower seeds and you mix that all together and keep it in a, in a jar in the freezer and every day take a few tablespoons out and mix them together, that's a great um, balanced omega-6 and omega-3 um, blend. If anyone wants to know of a product that I don't get any money for but that I use myself personally because I went and investigated the best product, I'd be very happy to share that with them If they go to my website, they can just opt in for my um, little four-day diet and they will get the whole little diet as well as the name of the product. And that's a product that I've used for the last 25 years. Since I discovered the importance of this, I went and searched for a product made with health in mind so that they can do that as well. And then just to be aware of all the different places that fat is used. And one of the places that always makes me really cranky is in salad dressings you know people will say i eat a lot of salads and i use a salad dressing and i'm always like well where did you get the salad dressing from because the damaged fat will be in the salad dressing so someone can think that they're making themselves a wonderful salad with you know great ingredients and then they take a store bought salad dressing which is made with damaged fats so make your own salad dressings they're really simple to make they don't cost more you can tweak the ingredients, I stick turmeric in mine and mustard seeds and lemon rind and all sorts of things. And I make gorgeous salad dressings, never the same kind. And it makes salad dressings fantastic. So that's something else just to watch out for where damaged fats are used in so many different places with food that you buy off the shelf.
0: Wow, that's great advice. So uh, Delia, where would, um, what is your website? Do you want to just tell us your website, give
1: you them go to and get that. It's lighter, brighter, you dot life. And to make it really simple, you can just type in lby.life. dot life. LBY, which stands for lighter, brighter, you dot life. And I've got quite a few articles on there. One of the articles I suggest people go and read is about olive oil. And we didn't have time to dive into olive oil um, in a lot of detail today. But in Australia, we're very fortunate to have one of the um, top bodies monitoring the olive oil that is, imported into australia and i've developed a really nice relationship with the olive oil association because i always check with them when i see a new olive oil on the shelves and i say you know hey is this a good one or is it not a good one because they've got a very sophisticated process that they put all the imported olive oil through so i only use the olive oil that that they've approved that has hasn't been adulterated with damaged fats which a lot of the oils from unfortunately even europe are adulterated with so I've got an article on my website about olive oil, which is a long article, but it gives you a whole lot of important information. So people become aware of even olive oil could be a problem oil. Mm. Okay.
0: Interesting. I never would have thought of that. I always think olive oil is a good quality oil. Um, and Delia, you've
1: got a couple of books, I understand as well. Yes. I wrote a very sciencey book that really goes into a lot of detail about what the brain needs to function optimally. And um, it's got a lot of detail in it. (laughs) And then I wrote a book to take those principles into your kitchen, which is a recipe book. And I think we mentioned that my publisher gave me a special offer to give, to pass on to listeners and that you, you can put that onto your show notes, which is a really nice offer. Um, it's to buy my science book, and then they get my recipe book for free, which has got a huge chapter on salad dressings because I'm obsessed with them and sauces and, and so on. Um, so yeah, the, those books are available, and they really give you a rundown of the facts in terms of in terms of nutrition for the brain, um, which you know I took many many years to get down to finding out exactly what those were, and you know not opinion, not beliefs, just the facts, what the brain needs. So I'm sure if people really want, want to know what those facts are, they can, they will enjoy the books. It, they're very empowering. Gillian McKay. So nice to speak to you.
0: Neuroscientist, psychologist, nutritionist. Uh, what a great chat. I've just enjoyed it so much. I've, I've forgotten myself and just been so informed by all your information. It's, it's great. Thank you so much for your time today. Such a pleasure, Gabby. It's been
1: delightful. Thank you.